0: on the show today roberto verganti professor of leadership and innovation at the stockholm school of economics and design theory and practice at the harvard business school and with us is also my co-host Rainier indal founder and managing partner of Soma equity so today we'll talk about reframing the most advanced leadership skill to have today
1: Roberto, welcome to this show. (laughs) Thank you very much for this invitation, Rainy and Vesna. It's a pleasure and honor to reflect with you on where leadership is going today.
0: Thank you so much. So let's start with this question around reframing. What is reframing?
1: Reframe is one of the most advanced practices of our mind. When we address a problem in reality, we always use a frame, a focus. It's very important because it helps us to focus on what is relevant and, and filter out what is not relevant that otherwise become too complicated to make a decision. But every now and then when the environment changes, we need to refocus, to reframe, to understand there are other things that make more sense. I can make a little bit of an example, very simple but and humble, but sometimes simple examples help. A, a few years ago, it was a actually 10 years ago, Gillette invited us to help them to address a the challenge they had. I mean, there has some contrasting signal. And the signal was that young people didn't want to shave anymore, a clean shave. And, and you know that Gillette has always been the best a man can get, which means you're a real man only if you're clean shaved. And the best man is the man who has the shorter hair. And then there was this young people who didn't want to shave anymore. And I see Rainer and see myself. and We are not clean shaved, so also adults. And it was very funny when we met the Edward and Leo Gillette and he looked at me saying, there's something strange about you. And the strange thing was I was not clean-shaved, so I was unpolite to him. And so we embarked in this journey to help them to make sense of a changing world, to reframe what they saw. And suddenly they slowly understood not only that, of course, shaving was not about having the shorter hair, but it was by building identities, a matter of styling today. But it was also the painful process of abandoning the myth of the past and the myth of the past that you are not a real man if you're not cliched. That's the most difficult thing. So this reframing, which is focusing new things and unfocus the old myth, it was a very difficult journey and it led to a practical result. And the practical result was that uh, nowadays Gillette has a new product line called King Gillette, which is targeted for people who don't want to cliché, but only styling is the top product line of Gillette. And, uh, it's more accepting diversity, of course, because everyone's has his own style and there's no best man in that case. So it's not only technical performer it's the strong change in the, what is meaningful for them and the acceptance of the world that is changing.
2: So Roberto, it it reminds me of sort of the journey that myself and also the world has gone through when it comes to sustainable investing. Because when I started Suma in two thousand sixteen, then uh, I think in the beginning I was the laughing stock in the community because you know why focus on sustainability and impact. No one has made money doing that before. And I came from a situation where, you know, uh, with a project firm where we were agnostic to these issues. And I became more and more concerned about the challenges we had in the world, both climate change and social inequality and also biodiversity. And I felt that these issues are becoming so large that you can't ignore them anymore. And it was also sort of a personal journey for me that I wanted to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. But I'm amazed at how the world has changed now since 2016 over the last five, six years and how suddenly it seems like the investment community is starting to reframe. Suddenly sustainability has to be a core part of the equation. It can't be ignored anymore. Is that similar to what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, there are two things that are very interesting what you say in in your story, which is uh, describe it in a classic pattern of reframing, first of all, when you reframe and you're the first one to do it, others believe you're crazy. I mean, one of our friends, the founder of Photographica, he has totally reframed what a photography museum is. It's not about conservation of only the few elite artists and where no one goes. Photographica is first of all, a place where you go to meet and reflect and become more conscious about what's going on in the world, which means also have more humble photography. And pop photography, because this is what had people to reflect. It's not about the art, it's about reflection. But when they open up in New York, I saved the title of the uh, New York Times critique, and it said, "Predictable, superficial photography that doesn't worth the, I think it was 25 dollars visit." Because of course, if you're a critic in art, you don't go to photographys because you don't find only the perfect selective photography. So every time you challenge something. Every time you reframe the meaning of things, those who are there before, they have their myth, they believe you're crazy. And that's why reframing is very complicated because at the beginning, if you're not really very centered around yourself, you believe you're wrong because everyone tells you you're wrong. So that's one part of the story. And it's when you reframe what other people see. Then there is a second part of the story that is even more difficult. And that now maybe it is the challenge for you right here now and the future, which is one thing that is extremely difficult is the second step, which is reframing yourself, especially when you're being successful. So I'm sorry if I use your example right here, but you, you're being a reframer and what is most will be the next challenge for you. How do you reframe yourself? What is the next step? And this is very difficult because. The recipe that makes you successful after a while becomes, in your case, imitated. So other people do it, hopefully, and this is great. But uh, the meaning of sustainability is is also changing. And I, I would like to talk a little about that and reframe. Reframing is not only how you reframe the meaning of something in society. Once you've been doing something cool and great and innovative, say, okay, but now this is wrong. I need to move forward. That's extremely complicated.
0: And why so? Why do you think that it's so complicated for us? Is it connected to the part that we sometimes call the ego? What is it?
1: It can be. I think
0: that, I mean, I'm a champion in being
1: hard to reframe myself. <laughs> so I think that is. it's very difficult to address the myth that made you successful and say uh, that myth doesn't work anymore. So the more you're successful, the more it's difficult to do it. And that's why it's a quintessential task of leaders, because leaders, by definition, if they are where they are, because they have been successful. And so you tend to confirm yourself when you become a leader and say, okay, if I'm here it, because what I did so far was good. And sorry, it's not like this. Actually, you need to unlearn what took you there, because what took you in the position of being a leader is not what you need when you are a leader in a changing world. I mean, there are so many myths. A few years ago, we were working with Illy. I mean, it is the best coffee in, in the world in terms of quality, but they have been missing great opportunities connected to what happened with Nespresso and Starbucks. And when I asked the top leaders what happened, how could you miss the opportunity of Nespresso? I mean, Nespresso is done by Nestle, which is a company we're doing, Nescafe. They asked, you know, but Nespresso is not an espresso. And I thought about this as, oh, yes, that's true. I didn't think about that because you don't have the pressure in the machine. So the myth of the espresso and, the, and what is the definition of an espresso, which was defined by Illy, is what prevented Illy to see the change. So it's the myth of our own success that prevents us to do that, because we believe we have the answer, but the answer is always good for the past, not for the future.
2: There was a friend that once told me that what you have to observe is what is in your side vision. So we all tend to look what's ahead of us, and focus. But the interesting things happen in the side vision, uh, metaphorically. So that comes to mind when you're challenging me to reframe again. What kind of reframing should I do? Because it's probably not what's straight in front of me, right? It's uh, something that is in the side vision and emerging, but that uh, people are ignoring because they, they're focusing on what's mainstream and what's in front of you.
1: Yes, and I have to say we need to focus because uh, one interesting thing about, I mean, focus is important because if you, and I don't know who the people who is listening to this podcast is doing, but I'm seeing you right here, I'm seeing you, Vesna, you're probably sitting in this moment. And if you really focus, you feel the pressure of your seat on your legs because you're sitting. But of course, five seconds ago, you didn't feel that. Because you were so focused on our conversation that you filter out and I'm filtering out noise that is outside because otherwise I cannot focus. So focus is important. If you don't focus, if you don't frame, you don't go anywhere. The problem is that as the world changes, that the focus needs to change. And how do you do that? How do you see the periphery? The problem is that the periphery is huge. And the mistake will be to take in more information, which we cannot process, unfortunately. So the point is not that. The point is, maybe two things. One is we launched a year ago a program was started was Refrain with the Stockholm School of Economics with executive education here. And it was a very pioneering program for leadership education because there is a lot of theory about this, about how do you reframe in cognitive sciences, in psychology, in innovation. But there is no real program about how do you train people to reframe. This was a program for top leaders, for chairmen, CEOs, and it was not about subjects. You don't, teach marketing. At that level, you don't need to do more marketing or more finance. It was all about mind training, so it was the first ever program I did without any class, but it was all about traveling, going to Venice, being in contact with art. We went to Tuscany in Aboca, which is one of our friends, and being in touch with nature. <laughs> the participants even do an interview to a tree and listen to what the tree told them. It was one of the most exciting experiences, and anyway, I will tell you later. But there are ways to reframe. And I just want to mention one, because I think that to me personally is the most important, the one that I use more and it's what the experience, for example, when we went to the Biennale in Venice. And when you're in front of reality, there is something you like. This is the frame. Okay. I like that. This is writing, especially as a leader, you not know, someone comes with an idea. Okay. I like this. And you also can say clearly what you don't like, but that's not reframing. Even when you say something you don't like, you're still within the frame. So you start to refrain when you are in the space in between what you like and what you don't like, which is the space of resonance. If you walk in an art gallery, there are clearly some pieces of art that you like, and there is clearly some piece of art you don't like. But then there is something that you stop for the moment and you don't know why. So you start feeling there is something that is talking to you and you need to follow that, which is the space in between. And that's a very difficult mind training because we tend to, if you walk in the art gallery, you, you walk so fast, that you don't see the details. So training that mindset and what we do, and we did in this program, we ask participants to come in pairs. So two for organization. And the reason is very simple that I believe personally, and we have been doing a lot of studies on that, that the way to see new things is because you don't follow an idea, you follow a person. I mean, in a way, when I met Vesna, when I met you, Rainier, we, of course, there was a, as Vesna said, there was a wavelength between me and her, but I didn't know exactly where we were going. But I said, okay, I like the way we think. i like just to sit down and, and talk to you. I don't know where we are going. And that's the moment in which you enter into new space, because I would never met you, Rainier, if I didn't meet Vesna. So most of the time, we do new things, not because we find a new idea, but because we find a new person that lead us into spaces where we would never go. I mean, think about your life, how many times you've been doing things you could never believe you would do just because of love. And love is one of the most powerful reframers. so sometimes you reframe when you start to find a new person, typically a pair that you like, and you don't know why, but you just follow that person because you just want to be close to that person. And then you end up in new spaces.
0: So it feels so true when you say this, Roberto, I was thinking about this kind of myths of leadership that we have, you know? leader knows a leader is a good planner right a great (laughs) problem solver all of that and we actually having in a way raising a whole entire kind of generation of future leaders also wiring them to say that they know everything we even judge students based on exams and stuff according to fourth and three years right (laughs) nobody is talking about their sense of curiosity or anything like that
1: yeah that's why for example my courses i basically only teach project-based. So give them a project and work with them. So some of my colleagues say, how can you rate and grade a project of the student if you're being helping them? Oh, I don't care. I just see how they think and how they react. But that's true. We educate leaders with the myth that the best leader is the leader who knows. And uh, one of our common Friends is Amy Edmondson. She talks about psychological safety, and she says something very interesting. She said that psychological safety is not about being kind. Oh, what a kind leader! Okay, it's, everyone feels safe. I believe I'm a kind person. Actually, that's my probably one of my limits: too kind sometimes. But so I always believe. Okay, my young PhDs—they're good. They feel good because I'm never you know a boss style. But in reality, I realized that they didn't speak up so much in our meetings. And Amy is in her book why. Not because I'm not kind, but because I know too much and I want to show off that I know too much. And maybe during this podcast, I tend to do the same. Uh, I want to show off that I know. And of course, the young people, when they see me that I know, how could they even say, Roberto, maybe that's not right. Because Roberto knows, of course, and and everyone knows that Roberto knows. How can I even dare to say, even if everyone is very kind? So that's the most pernicious way of creating psychologically unsafety, because... Everyone believes that this environment is kind, but in reality, when you compete on knowledge, that's the most unframing situation that you can create. (laughs) So the only way that that we can do, first of all, as, as I said before, at least the awareness that what led you into a position of a leader cannot be the same thing that keeps you there by definition, because these are two different concepts. A leader is the best person who doesn't know, but is curious to know.
0: Yeah. And leaders are leaders because they take us to places where nobody has been often, right?
1: Yeah. And also because they fall in love with someone, I mean, fall in love mentally. And so they're open to be, because this is what we saw is, are you as a leader open to be surprised by someone and follow this person in new places? Even if you believe you know what is right, even if you believe you know what is espresso, well, you know, maybe you meet the person, you don't even know and you end up doing something different that you couldn't believe it before.
0: You've spent decades researching how leaders and organizations can make an impact by creating meaningful innovations. So how do you connect reframing to innovation?
1: This is very important because we're getting closer to a very important point. I mean, why do we reframe? And there is a, which is connected to why we are leader, why we do business. And I know that this is a very important subject for your reflection, Vesna, Zainir. The original question when I started a long time ago, unfortunately, was how do you create things that people love? That was my, my quest. I'm Italian. I work with the design school of Politecnico coming from business. And I was attracted by the capability of this company to make not just better products, but maybe a few products, but that people really felt in love with something magic. And what I discovered is that People fall in love for, not for something that works better, but people fall in love for something that is meaningful and what is meaningful, we don't know. (laughs) Simply it makes sense. So when the example I had before about Gillette, judging men, according to how good they are shaved in the world of today is not meaningful anymore. I remember we used a lot of metaphor of sport at that time, uh, and there are what is called the new lifestyle sports. I mean, if you consider classic sports are running, skiing, swimming, they're always one winner and all the rest are the losers. So you can put everyone in a scale from one to a hundred, and there's the best. And that was the best a man can get. So we brought new perspective, new interpret what we call interpreters to this team. And, and we talk about one was a former Olympic champion, open a lifestyle sport uh, retreat, for teenagers, and they are all focused on another way of doing sport, which is about building identity. So if you think about BMX instead of cycling or snowboarding instead of skiing, it's all about style. There's no winner. There's no loser. There is an understanding of a society that is changing where individuality is important, respect. For the person is important. You don't put people on a skate. And I have three teenagers at children, I see they're all into diversity, identity. So that kind of innovation is not just a better way of shaving yourself and grooming yourself. That kind of innovation, first will come from trying to make things that are more meaningful. So does it make sense to do a razor with six blades or seven blades or eight blades in a society where everyone wants to have it, their own styling and their own identity? So reframing uh, is this kind of level of innovation. Basically, there are two levels of innovation. One is, okay, there is a problem. We know that people want to clean shape and we solve it better. So we do one more blade, six blades, seven blades and so on. But there is another kind of innovation, which is really, hold on, let's stop and let's reflect really on what makes sense and what is meaningful to people in society. And that's the second higher level, which requires reframing. And this is not a word for engineers. I mean, if also for engineers, but this is a word for leaders because leaders are those who makes, hopefully, things that are more meaningful. And uh, I would like to connect this to what many companies today talk about, which is the search for purpose. You know, Many organizations are purpose-driven. And sometimes these purpose statements are so abstract and generic that you cannot really understand if th- you're talking about a company doing cars, lemon juices, banks, they all look the same. We want to change the world for the best. And so eventually that purpose becomes real if the products and services you do are meaningful. So the meaning of what you do, the meaning of the product you do, the meaning of the shavers you do, the meanings of the car you design is what create a purposeful business. We sometimes we forget that businesses exist because what they do, the product and the service they do, they are meaningful to people. And when you start to lose touch with that meaningfulness, Then even inside the organization, you see that people doesn't find the meaning anymore. So I come from there. I come from product and services. But if we lose track of the meaning of the product and services we do, we lose track of the purpose of our organization. And that's the job of the leader. I like the attitude of Steve Jobs. He was a product leader. He was really focused on, we want to do the best, most meaningful products ever. And more meaningful doesn't mean better in terms of performance, but it makes sense for people. And if we do a few products, because Apple does only a few products that makes sense for people All the organization find meaning.
2: But how can you engage the whole organization in that reframing process and innovation process? Because if you take a swimmer, if, if I'm the one that is always going to come up with the reframing and, and developing sort of our, our purpose. Um, And meaning, that might go in a different direction than if uh, we got the whole organization engaged in it, right?
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, It's a very good point. And engagement is one of the biggest challenges, especially in this new world where we want to innovation come from the bottom, not only from the top, or at least in collaboration. And and, uh, it is challenging. There are a few tools that are growing this moment, especially from the world of design, because design has the power of being very engaging. When you work on things, where you don't only reflect, but you really put your hands into the real products you do. I have to say that every leader in his small team, in a small group, needs to find the meaning of what we do. Every team eventually delivers something. Even if you're in accounting, you're delivering performance report, whatever you do, and, and it needs to be meaningful to the people you deliver this. So it is a job at every single level. The more you go up, of course, the more reframing becomes extremely important, but even myself in my small team of researchers, I need to reframe continuously what we do with the help of the others. So it should be a, a mindset that is spread all around the organization.
0: How do you connect this with the uh, meanings of uh, sustainability?
1: I think that this is it's a very exciting reflection, connecting, reframing meaning and sustainability there are three perspectives, at least what I see when, when I work in organizations organization on sustainability. One is sustainability as a must-have. That's one meaning. Okay. What does it mean? It means that, okay, uh, there is a kind of sustainability that you need to comply with. Regulations, typically, that you need to comply with. If you will build cars after 2035, these cars will need to be electric. At that point, sustainability will be a must-have. Then there is uh, the second approach is sustainability as a differentiator. What does it mean? You compete in the market and in society because your product is more sustainable. Probably the quintessential example is Patagonia. Why do we buy Patagonia? Because it's sustainable. It's, it's uh, or in the car industry, the old way of looking at cars, uh, you know, you bought a small city car because we, that car it was sustainable. You can go in the city center. And there was no point. so, which means typically it appeals one segment of the market, which is the segment of people who is sensitive to sustainable subjects. Okay. What is the limitation of this strategy? The limitation is that it's very hard to change the world this way, because you only appeal to that segment of people, customers who are willing to compromise on something quality because of sustainability. So in a way, it's a company that is pushing the burden of sustainability on the customers, and which means only customers who accept this burden will be happy. That's the example of Patagonia, I mean, you don't change the world of fashion like this It's fine. It's totally fine. It's, it's a segment, but it's a very small segment because not all people is willing to compromise. on And then there is a third meaning of sustainability, which I call sustainability as a gift. And sustainability as a gift means that you don't compromise on quality. You don't compromise on quality. You capture all the three things, quality for the customers, profitability for the business and sustainability for society. And the example in this case, uh, I mean, it's quite trivial, is Tesla. I mean, what Tesla did, they totally reframed the meaning of an electric car. It's not that you buy it because it's sustainable. Okay, it's a goofy car, but yeah, I want to be sustainable and make a sacrifice. No, no, The Tesla is cool. It's better in terms of engine, it's better in terms of sustainability, and it's better in terms of profitability. So that's the sustainability as a gift, which means people buy that car because it's happy. And by the way, it's more sustainable. And that's the only way you change the world. And there was a recent interview to Elon Musk, unfortunately in this moment, talking about Elon Musk is not definitely the most popular <laughs> way, but, but in any case, it was very interesting when in this interview in the financial Times he said, I think I've been anticipating, it was not a very humble statement, he said, I think I've been anticipating regulation about electric cars, by 10 years. And I have to say, it's probably true. You wouldn't have electric cars in Europe in 2035 without Tesla. And the reason is that you're not asking people to make big sacrifices. It's just cool. So of course, as you can understand, I'm most intrigued by this third way of looking at sustainability in which the burden is on the innovator. I mean, you need to think. It's easy to say, okay, let's focus on this sustainable segment, because, which basically people will make sacrifices for this. No, no. We are the innovators. We need to make the mental sacrifice of being more innovative, which is what Rainier was saying before, is not either sustainable or profitable. It can be both if you approach things in a good way. And this is the real refrain. We will never succeed in sustainability by asking others to do sacrifices. It's a good dream, but we take responsibility ourselves to be innovative and give them both things. What we need to reframe, for example, is one of the myths that have been leading the innovation world in the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, the world of innovation and, and therefore the world of business has been driven by this myth of user-centered innovation, not design thinking, for example. Design thinking is quintessential user-centered. Well, I have to say that 20 years of design thinking didn't leave as a more sustainable world. Because if you focus on the user, you which sometimes I call it userism, which is a new word for consumerism, but it sounds cooler, but it's still consumerism. I mean, you're giving people what they want, which is not necessarily the result of a vision that gives people a little more than what they can have. So what we are trying to do now in, in our studies is how can we develop a more systemic thinking approach to innovation, which you don't innovate only for the user, you innovate for an ecosystem of users, stakeholders, places, nature, things, there is also the i mean some, most of the products now they interact with the other products, so the ecosystem of stakeholders is such a complicated thing that if you focus just on the user, you miss the big picture, especially if you don 't make more sustainable things
2: yeah, we have been working on that around what we call systemic investing, so if you look at how our industry has been built up, and also the fund structure. You know, you have venture funds, you have buyout funds and growth funds, you have infrastructure funds, and then a lot of private equity firms are sector-based. So you focus on one sector, and then you have separate teams for all of these different funds. So our approach is very much, we, we are thematically focused. And if you take circular economy, It's not only about, you know, we own a waste management company, but circular economy is not only about the waste management company. It's all these different across sectors, players that have to work together and you have to reach, you have to change the value chain if you want to get to a more circular economy. So we've been thinking, you know, the, the current structure of our industry is wrong because if you, so we have a team focusing on the circular economy. We can't have four different teams focusing on that. So you can't have a venture team that does its thing and an infra fund that does its thing, because then you're not going to attack this problem systemically because that's an, you have to do it in an integrated way. So we have now developed our theory of change for how to get from where we are to a more circular economy. And then we are seeing how we can sort of align the strategy with our waste management company but also what other investments we can do in order to, to accelerate that theory of change. And that leads us into a systemic investment approach where we see that we need to do some infra investments, we need to do some venture investments, and we need to do some buyout investments. And if we can get these to cooperate, you can get the synergies between them and you can accelerate the path towards sort of a more circular economy. So it's sort of, that's a way where we're suddenly the old boundaries between different funds and between sectors disappear when you think thematically and you think around what's the problem we're trying to solve. And this is a systemic problem. It's a wicked problem. And how do you then move that towards a solution? and then our current structure in our industry doesn't quite work.
1: I have to say that I realize now, need that behind you there is a lemon, uh, which is uh, if I think it's a lemon. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. How can you have a lemon indoor? This, this is the secret of Suma equity and, and you have a special relationship with nature, I suppose. You, you talk to the, you also, confess that you also talk to the trees. Uh, and, and, you remember uh, that, that's impressive. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. How can you have a lemon indoor? Say, anyway, we talk separately about this. But uh, what you said before is amazing. And I wish more leaders would have this awareness of understanding that the big opportunities of today are in the ecosystems and beyond the boundary of the organization. There was a recent article on HBR by Linda Hill. Linda Hill is one of the major this she was quite... my
2: professor at harvard
1: okay so you know her very well so she she wrote this book this book about collective genius and uh, this article was about she, she was okay what is the next step in my theories about collective genius which is for, all about the organization and now she talked about the collective genius of the ecosystem so the new leaders are those who are capable of activating this process of collective reframing and what we see and you cannot the big challenge is. Leaders are used to plan within their own organization because they have the power. When, when you move in the ecosystem, you don't have the power. So it's all about sense making. So it's a process which sitting, talking, which makes sense. And then when we go back to our organization, we will be ready to act. But it's basically building a collective understanding of the thematic area that you mentioned before. Because at that level, you cannot agree in plans. It's not like COP26 or 27 You really need to make sense of things. And hopefully this collective sense-making will lead us in a common territory.
0: I'm curious to also explore the topic of generative AI, Roberto. Why is it, do you think, relevant now for everyone, especially then leaders? But let's start first with defining what is generative AI. AI in general is the capability of computers to help
1: us making decision. Generative AI is the first time ever in which AI enters the space of creativity. So instead of making the best decision, I don't know, you screen thousands of X-rays about lungs and you find out there is a tumor there. So AI is very good in doing this. But in this case, instead, is AI is entering into the space of creativity. So it's helping people to create new things. And these new things in this moment can be new text, can be new images, it can be new codes for software, New music. So, uh, for the first time ever, AI is entering into the space that we consider to be the only space where humans had control, imagination. Yeah, I'm an engineer by education, but I, for the last 20, 30 years, I've been working more on design than technologies. But when I was using for the first time DAL E, DAL E is the machine by OpenAI, which is uh, creating images. You simply write a prompt Can you design a lemon tree in an office? Uh, and then it will make perfectly exactly that you know that maybe with a, a lot of lemon trees there the image that we, I see in this moment when I saw this I, I, my mind was blown up because the level of sophistication and perfection was very very high. I've been trying recently also the text generation which is called GPT three or four now we come the fourth one. Uh, yesterday night a person asked me a questions and okay I I did a trick I went to GPT I sent the answer and. She didn't even realize it was not me writing. So it was a machine. So the level of sophistication is high, which means, of course, in these cases, a lot of people are scared. Oh, my, uh, the machine will substitute uh -uh." us. They will not be artists anymore. And we know it's not like this. When photography was invented, it's not that art disappeared. I mean, there were still painters. Of course, the impressionists came. They were not the same painters as before. Actually, the impressionists that at the beginning were considered to be bad students, and they couldn't even exhibit their painting in the official Salon des Expositions in Paris. So every time technology comes, there is a change in society. And, and what they expect, what they expect is that, of course, this machine will not substitute us. They are fantastic, powerful, even more powerful brush for our mind. Steve Jobs, we used to say, you know, like a computer is a brush from our mind. This is even more powerful brush that we can use what it will change is that most likely people are not super good in using brushes. We start to have finally the power to express the imagination because of these tools. And what is really intriguing for me is how this tool can be used for leaders. Because leaders are, I mean, they have great mental images. In this moment, the only thing they can use is language. But imagine you can really imagine something, put it into this machine. This machine makes you create images and then can even imagine an entire organization Leveraging what rainy was saying before, how can you engage your organization? This machine has a power to engage everyone and everyone create their own image and we can play around that. So it is a fantastic technology. I know people is concerned because it's, of course, like any AI machine is trained on what is out there, it's trained on images on the web. So we know that if you ask, can you make an image of a nurse? Automatically the image of a nurse is a female. But that's the advantage is that we can have a little bit of control of what the machine is doing. We can fix ourselves. So we can say, okay, we know that on the average what people think about a nurse, think about a female nurse. So please, dear AI machine, can you fix this? And the machine will fix this if we want.
0: How can this generative AI approach, for example, help Rayner with, okay, the vision to, for example, create free energy or like create a solution in the waste industry with certain, you know, maybe 12 key parameters and download all that kind of input, can it literally point to a direction or a potential solution that could be valid? The machine, for sure, if you ask
1: some ideas in energy or banking or whatever, they will take out millions of ideas. The point is which idea makes more sense. And this is still the capability that humans have. Where do we want to go? And how do we steer? And this machine has an important power. If we want to add right here, it speeds up the process dramatically. So you have an idea and this machine can be used. For example, in pharma, there is experiment using artificial intelligence to speed up testing so you can do experiment much faster. You can engage people in the organization much faster because it brings from the idea you have in your mind to what is on paper in, in a matter of seconds. So imagine. Uh, how this can lead more rapidly when you have conversation in your thematic area right here. I mean, this machine can really help people to have much effective conversations around that.
2: Really interesting.
1: For example, you make an assumption about if we do this, we expect that uh, pollution will go down for, and, and the machine can do this kind of analysis very rapidly. And you would take years to to do years, Maybe years, not, but months to do. It. What happens usually when the cost of analysis is very high, you tend to be very conservative in your idea because you don't want to put out a crazy idea that then if it doesn't work, then you have been spending three months. But if you can test the crazy idea in three seconds, then you really try it. Okay, let me try. If it doesn't work in five seconds, I can do have another one, which is more conservative.
0: Roberto, so I'm also interested if we pick a more of a helicopter perspective and think about the world as it looks like right now, what does this world need the most, do you think? I have to confess,
1: I've been shocked by some recent events in leadership, especially I think that the event that shocked me most was the event in UK with Liz Truss. And probably she was the quintessential picture of what's happening in leadership today. I am the feeling that leaders are invited to be extreme in this moment. Maybe because we are all on, on the windows because of social media. You cannot be a humble leader because it doesn't create attraction. So leaders tend to be much but you see now Elon Musk, what he's doing in Twitter and, and uh, you see the rise of populism. So I think that in this moment, what will be needed is quite a lot of humility in leadership. Humility, silent action, real dialogue, it will pay off in the long run. I know that it doesn't pay off in the short run, but we also see, if we look at all these stories, that the parabola of, of a leader is nowadays extremely short. I mean, least trust is 44 days, but many populist parties leads very shortly. And so leaders have this invitation of doing big statements, but then uh, you crash very rapidly. So take it easy, humility in this moment is what the world needs more. Just action, do your thing and do it not because you want to be on the show, but because you find meaning to it.
0: And the world is also short of leadership heroes, right? So. How do we redefine really this? Who is a hero today? And and as you were mentioning, also some silent heroes around us. What do you think?
1: I'm in touch with the young generation when I teach. And I have to say I, I'm
0: teaching a course every summer
1: in Harab Business School, what you mentioned before, design theory and practice. And I've been impressed by how this new generation is Thinking in a more meaningful way about business, I just make a quick example. Uh, This summer, as a brief to the student, we had Ferrari. Okay, so, our Ferrari is cool, you know. (laughs) Ferrari has big challenges, you know, for example, what is the noise of an electric car or an electric Ferrari? You know, what is a Ferrari without noise? I mean, so Ferrari is big challenges. And I thought it was a cool brief and a cool company to work, you know, the quintessential, a big brand, luxury. Well, there was a moment in the class in which students say, why should we design for a luxury car brand why shouldn't we work on something different so it, there was a kind of little revolution so we need to stop and say okay let's reflect and then a team of students even developed a fantastic brief not about how to make the experience for the driver better but how to make the experience for the passenger better and because they so we don't care about the classic you know, Ferrari driver, and we care for the person sitting next to him, that him, because usually he's a male, who doesn't want to go on a Ferrari. So, and this suffering. So, it was a lot of reflection that I would never expect. So, I have to say, the new generation is extremely surprising in terms of uh, being a different kind of leader. Of course, if we look at what happened recently with the crash in the cryptocurrencies, there are also new generation that are not totally good. But at least what I met in the business school is very conscious young people.
0: And what would be your advice to young people today when making choices to design their life work?
1: I've been reflecting about this also because I have three young children in that age. And I always say, don't look at what is the job market because it will change completely in just in three years. So Forget about that. These typically people tell you, do what you like. When I was 25, I was a a musician at the time. And I always wasn't sure whether to become a real musician as a profession or become an engineer. And then probably I was a bad guitar player. So I didn't succeed in music. And I became a professor. And then I kept, I was still playing guitar nowadays. And then I understood that when you really like something, keep it as a hobby. So my guitar is my hobby and and it's very fun because I do not need to compromise. There's no business there, it's just pleasure and it needs to be pure pleasure. But I'm very happy I became a professor because being a professor gives me meaning. So choose what gives you meaning as a person. It doesn't need to be pleasurable because there will be a lot of pain in in your profession. Choose what gives you passion and passion comes from the Latin patira. So you're ready to suffer for that. And I was not ready to suffer for the guitar because it was just for pleasure. But I'm ready to suffer for teaching because the idea of helping young people grow gives me meaning. So that's a little bit of a criteria to choose what to do. Find something that gives you meaning and you're ready to suffer from that.
2: If I would jump in and add something based on what I've learned through this conversation, Roberto, is to uh, ask all the young people to fight what they believe in, in the organizations they are. Because if I as a leader is going to reframe, I think those ideas are going to come from the young ones they see things that I don't see and they live more in the periphery. Well, I'll probably, you know, (laughs) look straight ahead. If the young fight for what they believe in, they can help the organization reframe.
1: By the way, in this program that we did last year, we had the process of reverse mentorship. So every participant was paired with one student of SSC with exactly with this idea of helping the participant to see, and we are talking about chairman of large corporations, having these young students next to them, help them to see things that they couldn't see otherwise.
0: What do you wish the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode?
1: If you focus on helping I mean, people to change the life of just five people, you don't need to change the life of a million of people. If every one of us change the life of at least five people, then you multiply 8 billion people in the world for five, it makes 40 billion. So we, we still have you know a lot of change and good change for the next generations, but then you need to really to do it for five people. Big statements are interesting, diving into really changing things for real for someone is a fantastic pleasure. And I still go back to what I said before, therefore, so we can talk about ideas, we can talk about other things, but eventually I really believe that change is connected to human relationship and especially intimate human relationship. A few people who interact well can give you a lot of meaning.
0: So true. Thank you so much, both of you. A pleasure. I can't go on
1: forever because it's always very (laughs) stimulating to reflect with you.
0: So thanks, Roberto. Thanks, Rainier, for a truly valuable conversation, an important one to have. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after... We release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luka and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see.